our passage for today is Proverbs 9. There's a copy of it printed in your bulletin, or if you have it on your device or in your Bible, you can read along. Let me read Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud, and she is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. In his massive work, uh, City of God, Augustine of Hippo, 4th century leading Christian philosopher and theologian, one of the last of the church fathers, ingeniously discusses the two guiding principles, or really two loves, that shape historical development. He writes this, the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. The earthly city glorifies in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men. The latter finds its highest glory in God, the witness of a good conscience. The earthly lifts up its head in its own glory. The heavenly city says to its God, My glory, you lift up my head. In the former, the lust for domination lords it over its princes as over the nation it subjugates. In the other, both those put in authority and those subject to them serve one another in love. The rulers by their counsel, the subjects of obedience. 
The one city loves its own strength, shown in its powerful leaders. The other says to its God, I will love you, my Lord, my strength. Throughout this large work, the reader is encouraged to step back and to, to ask the question, which city, to which city, uh, do I belong? Right? Of which city should I be considered a citizen? Scripture frequently uh, discusses these two cities, these two kingdoms, two ways, two paths, two principles in which we stand kind of at a crossroads and we have to decide, we have to choose which way we're going to go. And of course, throughout the book of Proverbs, as we already know, we're coming to a very important point in this series on Proverbs, uh, the choice that we have is, is the way of wisdom or the way of folly. And I think that the two paths, wisdom, folly, uh, these two kingdoms, uh, different citizenship, they're all variations of something very similar. But for Proverbs, we're, we're talking about fundamental, a fundamental way, the very basic way to go. Proverbs 9 is kind of the high point of the first part of the book of Proverbs, first, first nine chapters. In this chapter in particular, we see, again, in a, in a very elevated way, a choice presented to the one who needs wisdom. And I think the passage can be read like a question to whose, we could say it this way, uh, to whose home will you go for communion? Wisdom's home or folly's home? It's a choice that we need to consider today. But I want to I want us to notice something a little bit different, and here is the main point uh, that I want to articulate and then try to unpack for today: is that wisdom accompanies the choice offered and caringly compels us to make the right decision. Let me say that again: wisdom accompanies the choice offered. So here's your choice, go this way or that way, but wisdom is always there. And, very important uh, adverb there, caringly, caringly compels us to make the right decision. So let's look at uh, uh, more closely the passage itself, and let's first look at the structure. This is a very important interpretive perspective we should always remember is the way in which the structure or the frame of a passage is also part of God's inspired word and and thereby communicates its meaning, right? We agree that God's word is authoritative, right? It is infallible, the entirety of it, even how it's laid out. And there's a beautiful symmetry uh, in the passage between verses one and one through six, and verses three thirteen through eighteen. In fact, what you could do if you have your your handout, uh, you can you can notice what I did there. Um, you can make a notation however you want, 
but on verse 7, maybe on the top of verse 7, you could put like maybe a little star or a line because we're supposed to see kind of, that's the first block, okay, or that's the first section. And then at uh, maybe verse, yeah, at 13, you can make another uh, uh, notation. That's the third part, and that, of course, highlights the uh, middle part, okay? So as we go through, this structural, and not to mention intentional, uh, symmetry highlights, okay, listen to me now, the, the, the very structure of it highlights or brings out the rivalry between these two forces, which I think also accents thereby the beauty and the truth of the whole passage. Now, we should say that in between the first part and the third part is wisdom having a, a very quick conversation for the one choosing which path to text. So we'll break up the passage as it's broken up itself, looking at each part under the following headings. Number one, so if you're taking notes, these are your three points. Number one heading is wisdom's domestic invitation. Number two is wisdom's counsel. Number three is folly's domestic invitation. Uh, and at the conclusion, I'll, I'll, I'll make a uh, kind of redemptive historical uh, theological connection. All right, so number one, sorry, wisdom's domestic invitation. This is verses one through six. So, as I said, we, we have these different paths, and here we have the imagery of different homes. Okay. Now, in verses 1 through 6, the home suggests community, intimacy, renewal. You know, we can think of Christ actually fellowshipping, bringing salvation to households. an imagery that's very important to uh, our own Reformed and Presbyterian tradition. So Christ brings salvation to households, notwithstanding that each member of the home is called to accept Christ. Once we are brought into the home of God, the imagery of the home continues in our sanctification, the gracious work of God, whereby we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And that's a domestic intimacy. One of the marks of sanctification is the practice of hospitality, which is, we might say, uh, is the means to display the fruits of the Spirit, mercy, service, giving, evangelizing. And for another, we're called to make sure that our house is ready when the house owner comes back, okay, to take care of what we, what's been given to us. So I'm just saying that to kind of reemphasize the imagery and the metaphor of uh, the house, preparing the house, a house for my name, coming to the house, uh, etc. Okay, so first, getting to the passage, passage directly, not speaking generally, wisdom has built not just a magnificent house, but one that will not fall. The seven pillars indicate perfection or 
Uh, and personally, I, I like this term better, completeness. Which then also adds to the idea that it's very strong and it's going to last long. We can also include that it has an important status in society. Right? So this is very strong. Seven is a, is a symbol of perfection or completeness. Second, she has slaughtered her beasts. Now, a more direct translation is that, may sound a little bit awkward, but she has slaughtered her slaughtered. And, and this just means that she's slaughtered and now she prepares the feast. Okay, it's, it's, it's getting, it's, uh, I, most of us are not slaughtering our own chickens. When we have dinner, we get a chicken by way of, uh, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Mai Tai, Dinda Mai Tai or something like that uh, comes to it. Why Mai? That's the word I was looking for. I couldn't, couldn't think of the word. <laughs> Why Mai? We have the chicken. It's slaughtered, and then we kind of slaughter it further, right? Cut it up, we prepare it for the family. Not difficult to really get, to understand. Next, there's mixed wine. Now, mixed wine promises a celebratory mood. Wine makes the heart glad. And in this case, mixed wine, and we're most likely talking about the addition of honey or spices for taste. I, I, I know we don't necessarily do that now to destroy wine uh, that way, but think, of, think about it in the ancient um, uh, world. And this also reflects we're going to have a good time. Okay? And again, the emphasis is, is preparing. Third, now that her home and feast are prepared, she sends out an invitation by way of her servants, calling from the high point of the town. Now, this high point has profound theological implications. The high place is where one would place a temple. So wisdom's house is very sacred, if you will, and we come to it solemnly and reverently. Number four, and finally here on this first section, who does she call? Well, as in previous chapters, we see her calling the simple-minded, the ignorant, those who need wisdom, those who need to learn how to live. And there's an important note at this juncture one commentator says that when a man enters a woman's house, there is an intimation of relational intimacy. This is not an uncommon trope in uh, Near Eastern literature. And I think this is really interesting. Since we, we place a lot of, we place a heavy emph emphasis on the sexual immorality of lady folly or foolish, but in doing so, we actually lose sight of the subtle, even romantic or love intimacy offered by lady wisdom. It's not gross, it's not immoral, it's good. Well, second point, wisdom's counsel. This is verses seven through 12. 
This is a little bit tricky. Biblical scholars have scratched their heads over these six verses, specifically how they fit within the parallels of the first section and the last section. So let me make a few observation, observations in this, in this regard. First, the six verses are observations and advice concerning wisdom over against folly. The latter often referred to uh, in the extreme as the mocker. And of course, wisdom is shown in a positive, positive light. So folly in a negative light, wisdom in a uh, positive light. Second, one writer says that verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18 are illustrative. While this portion offers an indicative contrast, what they are. That is, each type of individual mentioned in verses 7 through 12 corresponds with the two women as a whole in Proverbs 9. The way I sort of visualize this is that what is talked about in that middle portion is almost like this kind of gravitational pull either to one or the other. Okay, but they're put they're put together. Okay. Third, perhaps this is wisdom making an argument to convince the young man, encouraging to him to side with wisdom. It may also be a moment for the young man to think very carefully about his decision. And with wisdom talking, it, it may show that it is wisdom that cares the most. So notice in verse 11, wisdom shifts to the first person. As we've seen in, previous in the previous chapter, this change to first person warms the relationship. You see, wisdom speaks. But guess what? You notice that folly doesn't really speak? Or doesn't maybe doesn't speak that much? Why? As we will see, folly is shallow and doesn't really care much. Which, again, as communicated through the structure of the passage, may entail the smallness, the emptiness of folly. In short, folly is not interested. Hence, her voice on this point is very quiet. So it seems like wisdom is more talking, talking here. It's, there's not a kind of a, uh, an equal debate, let's say. Okay? Wisdom says, come this way. But, the, but wisdom accompanies the one who's making the choice. As we'll see, folly's pretty loud, but folly's not following the one who has to make the choice. Fourth, this section tells, tells us of, um, or communicates, knowing our limits. Okay? I've said before that wisdom is, is a part of wisdom is humility, and humility is knowing uh, your, your own limitations. For instance, in verses 7 and 8, wisdom will avoid correcting a scoffer, since the wise person knows that doing so, maybe after a couple times, maybe after a few times, 
it will only occur abuse and injury. The wise person is not foolishly persistent. He or she knows when to walk away so as not to waste their time. Absolute or non-stop persistence in correcting someone, I think, is kind of indicative of pride. A pride in wanting to control someone else and wanting to control the situation. So if we're going to be persistent in correcting discipline, we need to do so with humility. The latter latter of which is that flip side of wisdom, as I've already said. I see a lot of slogans in education. And I've seen one particular slogan in China and in the United States. The phrasing's a little bit different, but essentially it's, it's this. I will persist until I succeed. Now, of course, never talking about what, what do you mean by succeed? I think a lot of people in America will think success is making a lot of money, getting a great job. That I would challenge, of course. But even if you are pursuing a lot of money, you could actually tip over into foolishness if you persist. In other words, if you're just hard-headed to get your way, right? So there's there's something missing with that kind of slogan. Well, anyway, the simple-minded, also in this passage, in this portion, the simple-minded should likewise consider their limitations. And I like this part because we're given practical and tangible directions to be wise. We're to pray for wisdom. But at the same time, God does give us uh, kind of helpful practices to be wise. For example, when you are corrected, don't be abusive. Don't be abusive. When you're corrected, don't hate. Okay? When you're reproved, don't hate. Don't be a scoffer. And what is a scoffer? Sailor last night asked, what is a a scoffer? Well, at at a very basic level, is that if someone gives you correction, and you know that correction is given well, like you, you understand it, a scoffer would say, oh, please, what do you know? And you walk away, right? It's really opening yourself up to the the skill, let's say, the skill of listening. Okay. So love the one who gives direction. And, and, and look, I, I mean, I know this is hard. Correction always hurts me. Okay. And sometimes, most of the time, when I get correction, uh, I can give you um, a number of examples. Well, I think I've shared this one example. I, I've been uh, working every day um, to study, study Chinese, just working very hard. My pronunciation is not the best, so I'll try to say something in, in Chinese, and my daughter, she's like, Dad, come on, you didn't get that right. But it's not just my daughter, it's my sons, and it's my wife, and they're like, oh, come on, come on, you know. And it kind of hurts, you know, at first, because you were so confident in getting this down. Uh, But then you have to open yourself up to 
uh, uh, correction. I, I, I work in a world also in, in uh, teaching and scholarship where you're criticized uh, a lot, and that criticism can really hurt uh, uh, at times. But the only way that you're going to grow, you know, is if you uh, listen to that correction uh, and the discipline. So I want to kind of head off any accusation of being hypocritical because this is this is very difficult uh, for me um, uh, as well. Finally, notice that in this section, uh, in wisdom's instruction, there is the reminder of the essence of wisdom. I mean, why are we doing this? It brings us to the motto of the entire book of Proverbs, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and so chapter 9 is a high point because it kind of, it should remind us of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And what's interesting is that in chapter 1, verse 7, the word wisdom is used, while here it's knowledge. And there's no complex conclusion that we have to draw here, right? This is not a difficult equation that we have to solve. Very simple. Knowledge and wisdom are one and the same. But both are attached to a fear of Yahweh. And we're gonna, we'll talk about that in a moment. But remember also what we said fear meant in this case. And again, I, I appreciate one commentator who says fear is neither mere respect nor utter terror. It's something between the two. We might use the term, or I would prefer the term uh, sublime. And sublime is this immediate sense of being consumed by something greater, something awesome, something terrifying, but not. The sublime does not come solely by imagination, but it comes by way of experience. I mean, this could be something as terrifying as a storm at sea, okay? The supply can be all-consuming and as terrifying as the love that someone has for you, okay? So the sublime holds together the intense feelings of fear, but the objective reality that we need not fear. It's the overwhelming fear of, think about it this way, standing in the presence of God and then God saying to us, fear not. Now this fear, it's the beginning of, uh, uh, this fear of Yahweh, this will add to our life. Think about having more wisdom and adding to your days. And we're, we're not necessarily talking about chronological uh, uh, addition, but more of a full life. Verse 12 says that if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean we're selfish and we can be puffed up? Well, of course not. I think there is a godly kind of self-reliance. That is, um, uh, you'll be prepared for life when you're open to correction. Closing yourself to correction, ignoring it, it's only going to hurt you. 
because you're not going to know how to navigate uh, life. Right? So you're wise for yourself. You're wise for your benefit. Okay. Now we get to the, the third uh, part. The third heading. Folly's Domestic Invitation. So the first thing we see is a description of folly, right? We, we know that wim, woman wisdom is orderly and constructive, but folly is presented as loud and boisterous or boisterous. The word in the original language refers to a chaotic and disturbing noise. Her speaking can be considered boisterous because she is, according to the passage, simple-minded or ignorant herself. Remember that the fool opens his mouth wide, meaning he's only interested in his own voice. He's only interested in himself. He certainly doesn't want to listen to others, especially the wise. Nor is he open to, let's say, what the world might uh, teach him. Second, Lady Folly, uh, and I was kind of struck by this this part personally, Lady Folly is sitting at the doorway to her house. As opposed to Wisdom, who has prepared her entire house, Folly gets no such depiction. The fact that she's sitting while speaking may point to the fact that she's lazy. She, she hasn't prepared. You don't necessarily see, at, at least at this point, what's going on inside the house. She hasn't adequately prepared. Or she's all talk. Imagine, we're very excited for all of you to come to our, our home on Saturday for Thanksgiving. Imagine that everybody comes over and uh, Becky doesn't cook anything. There's still dishes in the in the sink. Uh, we got laundry strewn everywhere. We haven't even cleaned anything. We haven't prepared the house. How would the guest feel? Well, the, the guest would feel like, well, we're not really honored, right? Or I don't know, maybe you wouldn't feel uh, anything necessarily. But when we and now I'm reinforcing in our kids' mind now that we have to prepare, <laughs> right? When we have guests coming, we're going to clean up. We're going to, uh, uh, Becky's going to uh, uh, cook. And so you're going to come and you feel, wow, I feel so honored uh, coming uh, to this home. So I kind of raised the bar pretty high. So, sorry. Mom. Number three Woman folly speaks from the heights of the city. Where at, as we said before, where a temple might be built. And of course, this denotes that she provides a rival sanctuary, a false sacred place, a different religion than that of woman wisdom. She's a contrary spiritual force in essence. But like wisdom, number four, she too speaks to the simple-minded, those traveling on their way. And here we see the competition between 
uh, wisdom and folly. But as I said before, noting the middle portions, when it comes to instruction, her voice is kind of muted, which I think tells us something. Finally, there is a meal. But notice the contrast with wisdom. Her meals appeal to the baser instincts of humans. Water and food. Don't even know what food it is or or water compared to mixed wine are stolen and eaten in secret, suggesting there's something to hide, something to be ashamed of. There's no work that goes into making preparations. And biblical scholars say that stealthy savoring and delight in stolen food has long been part of the coded language of prostitutes. But there's other imagery as well about stolen bread or uh, any kind of stolen food. It, it kind of becomes sand or, or just gravel in your mouth. You try to enjoy it, but you really can't uh, enjoy it. And related to this, we see the guests at the meal. Who are the guests at the meal? The dead. Those who accept, accept Folly's invitation go expecting food, perhaps naively, which gives normally gives life and energy. But the opposite occurs. Her, uh, uh, her meal brings death, and her guests are the departed, her departed ancestors. They're in Sheol, in the grave, or the underworld. In either case, the reference to the departed, the Rephaim, and Sheol connect Folly's association, reinforces this idea that her meal is associated with death. So now that we've looked at the parallel, um, uh, the parallels between these two spiritual forces of wisdom and folly, with an offer given to the one making the choice, let's then sharpen, perhaps we can say perfect, the imagery by considering this poem in the light of the better covenant found in the New Testament. Specifically, I want to draw out the redemptive historical elements of Proverbs chapter 9. We know that we should be dining with wisdom. Well, who is this wisdom? Well, wisdom's fulfillment, as we've said, noted before, and we must repeat over and over again, Wisdom fulfillment, its perfection, its completeness, uh, is Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that with the coming of the New Testament, wisdom becomes more than a metaphor, it's incarnate. Heaven and earth come together. Christ is the complete one. Christ is the perfect wisdom. And it's in his house that we dwell. It's his house that he prepares. You know, I think I think chapters 8 and 9 uh, should be read and, and also discussed together. We don't have a lot of time to do that. But maybe this week, meditate on both chapter 8 and chapter 9 to better understand wisdom and its connection to Christ. So like I said, it's Christ who prepares a house 
a feast for us, sending out servants throughout the world to bring in the guests. Why would we reject such an invitation? Now, if wisdom is Yahweh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, then who is folly? Let's take a a closer look at this, asking the question, who also has a house on the high point of the city? Folly is the personification of foolish thought and behavior, representing competing deities, competing religions. Specific to the Old Testament would be, that is is to say, those who are listening to uh, Proverbs chapter 9, would be the pagan gods and goddesses who desire to lure Israel away from the true God, Marduk, Baal, Ishtar, Asherah, uh, Chemosh, Moloch. But I think we can extend this to all spiritual forces, and I would add religious drives or motives, as we're uh, told in Romans 1. Anything, physical or metaphysical, and it's really, really metaphysical, right? Am I, am I right? Oh, thanks, Fisher. Okay. You can talk to me about that after. That we would uh, try and substitute for the triune God. We suppress and exchange the knowledge of the true God. Again, the one who has to make the choice must realize that there is no wisdom apart from a relationship with woman wisdom, with Christ. Returning to that motto, the fear of Christ is the beginning of knowledge slash wisdom. The two houses of wisdom and folly stand behind the Lord's teaching that contrasts the house built by a wise person and the one built by a fool. Matthew chapter 7, Luke 6. You see, the, the, the house built by Christ withstands, withstands any slot, onslaught. Uh, 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 the gates of hell cannot prevail over it, while that of folly leads to very easy destruction. So we know which to choose. We also know the one who cares for making the right decision. Christ and his Holy Spirit will attend to us as we consider making that decision. Joshua 24, 15. Joshua, the the leader of God's people after the death of Moses, called on the people of God. He says, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your ancestors or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't think we should take Joshua's statement as one in which we're free to examine equally and then choose, and either choice uh, is fine. He's not saying that either choice is equally valid. Rather, Straight away, it's about making the choice, following the wisdom of Joshua. Look, I encourage my kids to follow Christ, 
to believe in Christ, to worship Christ, to pray to Christ. But so long as you're in my house, this is what we do, right? We pray, we go over the catechism, we read scripture, and that's what you are going to do uh, as well. I mean, speaking uh, to, to my kids, that's who we are. But then individually, we're daily confronted, even as adults, with the choice to follow God, the way of wisdom, or other paths. So choose the way of wisdom, the way not simply of or toward Christ, but the way that is Christ. So are you wondering whether you should choose such a path? If so, I would say, then choose. Choose Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. If you are unsure about the choice, then I say still, choose Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. Joshua did. Augustine did. And as he continued, as Augustine continued in his profession of teaching and in writing, uh, shaping uh, Western uh, Christianity, shortly after his conversion, he committed himself to the wisdom of God. As a motivator for his learning, he said this, I have turned away from all the things that moral men consider to be good, and I have set myself the goal of serving the pursuit of wisdom. Everyone agrees that we are impelled to learn by the double urge of authority and reason. And so, from this moment forward, it is my resolve never to depart from the authority of Christ. For I find none that is stronger. For I am disposed now that I have unbound desire to apprehend truth, not only by believing it, but also by understanding it. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that Jesus Christ has become the wisdom of God, that he is a wisdom and that he cares and that he accompanies and he calls on us to choose him. He's prepared a place for us. He has sent out his servants to invite guests. He is hospitable. He gives life. He lays out a table before us, at times even in the midst of our enemies. And we thank you, God, that, uh, Lord God, that you uh, sent your only begotten uh, Son, who is perfectly obedient in life, gave his own life to save the world. We thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord Jesus, you rose from the dead and you conquered a death, and we anticipate um, the day when we will be raised and um, we can have a glorious time 
and a great feast with you, Lord, in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you cultivate faith within us? Would you unite us to Christ? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you convince, convince us of the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Would you renew our wills and help us and to persuade us and enable us to embrace the Lord Jesus as he's offered in the gospel? And give us faith, Lord, a saving grace whereby we we rest, we receive, and trust in Christ alone for salvation. For those who are looking to make the choice to follow you, we pray that you would compel them to make that choice and that you would give them life. And we pray this to the Father in the name of Jesus. Amen.